At first, I couldn't really see anything. I could only hear. I could hear the woodcarver kind of walking around, picking up stuff. He painted eyes on my face, and I could see. And I looked right at him, and he's like, Whoa, you alive? You made out of wood. And I said, figure it out, brother. And I jump up, and I'm out of the door, and it's fabulous. The stink, and the pretty girls, and the flashing signs, and this bright sunlight. And I start staring back at the people staring at me, and I see I'm the only one made out of wood. And I wonder if that's going to be a problem. And next to a big tent, I see a sign. It says, come see the greatest show in the land. I sneak in the back of the tent and right on a stage, I see a bunch of other people made out of wood. And I say, hey, what's up? But they're quiet. Then the curtain lifts and bright lights shine down on us. Then strings lift the wooden people up and make them start hopping around. Strings. I don't need no stupid strings. So I push the wooden people aside and I start dancing, right? Hit me! I give the crowd a little James Brown and they love it. Moving, doing it, you know. Then I throw in some MJ and they lose their mind. Backstage, Mr. Big Top wants to talk to me with a quickness. Says we can split the take 50-50. And I'm like, how am I going to do all the dancing? You get 50%. How about 70-30? It's a done deal. An hour later, he announces the next show. In the center ring, the amazing puppet with no strings. This time, I do a moonwalk. Ladies are throwing flowers on stage. I leave them wanting more and walk off feeling like a star. After the show, while Mr. Big Top congratulates me, the blue woman appears in a cloud of dust. My child, what are you doing here? Well, I'm getting ready for the next show. But don't you want to be a real boy? Nah, I want to be in the circus. And she spits it like it's a bad word. Don't say this word, circus. Circus. Circus, I want to be in the circus. Never say this word again. Listen to me. Circus. Understand? The blue woman pulls out her wand and aims it and zaps me right between the eyes. My face starts itching. What the? And my nose starts growing all crazy. Magic. And she's winding up to shoot me again. And I scram out of the back and I'm running as fast as my little wooden legs would carry me. get back to the man's house. I'm like, hey, hey, look at my nose, Mr. Woodcarver man. Courtesy of your little blue lady friend. How'd you get with her anyway? And he's like, 
But, you know, that blue lady, she's a, she's a fine woman. And when you get a little older, you're going to understand that. Now forget about all that. What you going to do about my nose? And then I see him coming at my face with some kind of cleaver. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on now, son. I'm your son now. And he chops. And it hurts. But it does fix my nose. I'm too angry to say thanks. And I just leave. And I get back to the circus where I'm appreciated. And I love everything about this circus. I love the lions. I love the elephants. I love the clowns. I love the cotton candy. I love the hairy lady. I love the flying trapeze. And I love that Mr. Big Top saves me for last. Prepare to be astounded by the amazing puppet with no strings. awesome. It had been a crazy first day of life, and even little wooden boys get tired. So, after the last show, I climbed into the fat man's trailer and laid my head on a bag of cotton candy, and I thought about how happy I was to have found the circus. When I woke up, Right away, I know something's wrong. I jumped to my feet. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I look down at my fingers, and I can't believe it. My hands, my arms, my legs. No! Everything is made out of meat. I'm a real boy. And then I see her in the corner, clapping her hands together. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't I a good mommy? It took most of the magic I had, but I did it. And I know I can't be in the circus like this. Turn me back right now. You're welcome. You are welcome, dear son. Turn me back. And she disappears. I know. I've got to go talk to Mr. Big Top. We've got to work something out. No, 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 no. I need a dancing puppet, not a dancing little boy. They'll throw me in the slammer, and I'm not going back in there. It's over. No more circuits for you. Oh, please, Mr. Big Top, no more circuits. The blue lady ruined everything. And since that dark time, since that very dark time... I haven't been able to go back to the circus. I could never go back until today. On Snap Judgment, right here from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Circus Circus. Amazing stories from the greatest show in the land. Step right up, step right up. I'll be your master of ceremonies from a very special big top. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Now, when you think of the circus, you might think of one of those newfangled big top tents on the side of the interstate. But understand, this is an old tradition, ancient. There are circs all over the world. And our next story takes us to the old days of the Soviet Union, when the circus was a point of national pride. Sasha 
Ivanov began his life in a tiny military enclave in the Soviet Union. In a top-secret town that didn't even have a name. I was born in a little town. Instead of name, it has number. Chelyabinsk, 65. And it was a very secret town. That was great childhood. Nice weather there. We have a joke. Just two seasons. Winter and July. The truth is there wasn't much to do in town 65. It was cold and rural and travel was forbidden. But a few towns away, there was a permanent circus. One that Sasha got a few thrilling glimpses of. Once in a while, my parents were taking me to go to circus. And of course, that was a dream. That was some kind of uh, piece of wonder. And the circus was a very big deal in the Soviet Union. Circus celebrities were household names, and the performers were trained and cultivated from a young age. At that time in Soviet Union uh, was a very unique system of selecting talented sportsmen. Every little town had palace of sport. So when Sasha was a little boy, his parents took him to this local palace of sport. He was trained first as a swimmer, and then as a wrestler, and ultimately as a gymnast. And when he was ready, he had his big audition for the coveted Moscow Circus School. It was 1978. It was about 5,000 people who applied. They're going to take 53 people from that. And when I passed uh, that audition and my name appeared on the list, (laughs) I was uh, the happiest guy. So being a circus performer meant fame, yes, but it also meant freedom. People in the Soviet Union uh, didn't have rights to travel to another city or town to live. If you live in Chelyabinsk, you cannot just go to Moscow. And only few professions were given you rights to travel from town to town, from country to country. They were kind of elite professions. Ballet dancer, hockey player, uh, circus artist. And for me, of course, I was happy I became kind of part of that elite people. And on top of the fame and the freedom and the prestige, Sasha would have a pretty decent income. More rubles than most people in the country could dream of. Of course, uh, it's money. I knew in 15 years when I will finish my circus career, I will have enough money to buy my own apartment in Moscow to have my little vacation house and to have some nice car. So in the circus school, he developed this teeterboard act. He would jump on a seesaw and launch a beautiful woman 25 feet in the air and catch her neatly on his shoulders. Audiences of the thousands rose to their feet in applause. Uh, Of course, it was an incredible time. I was young, I was strong. I was full of energy. We traveled all around Russia. And of course, uh, when I had some tours uh, next to my hometown, I paid for my parents' tickets. Uh, They were happy. They were happy. But this was the 1980s, and the Soviet Union was headed for trouble. (laughs) When the Soviet Union collapsed, that was a surprise. It it happened uh, so fast. 
I don't know, 90% circus people, they just felt they lost everything. They lost future, they lost immediate money, they lost everything. Suddenly, hundreds of elite circus athletes were out of work. But there was one place that was hiring. Vegas. I bought ticket. Moscow to Las Vegas, I get here. That was hot. <laughs> After Moscow, that was very, very bright and very, very hot. <laughs> it's Las Vegas. But it didn't matter because Sasha was performing again. Of course, when I had my chance to work, I was happy. It's like old circus horse. When the circus horse staying in the horse house and uh, listening to the music of the circus act, she's starting kind of dance. Just like an old circus horse, it didn't matter where Sasha was. If the music was playing, he was on. And for me, uh, to hear music, to see 3,000 people watching me, that was kind of happiness. This is what you were born for. But the life and the status of a circus performer wasn't what it had been in the Soviet Union. In Moscow Circus, we didn't have contracts. They hired me as an acrobat for 15 years. If something happened during these 15 years, for example, uh, I broke my arm and I can't perform as an acrobat anymore, they were giving me another job. You didn't lose your profession after being injured. Things are different in Vegas. One night, in the middle of his teeterboard act, Sasha launched a girl high into the big top, and as she twisted and turned back towards the ground, he realized his partner was going to miss the catch. So Sasha sprung forward and caught the woman upside down before she hit the ground. But he was in bad shape. I completely broke my shoulder. It was uh, <laughs> kind of surprise for me. Uh, they kicked me out. <laughs> that was just cheap. Sasha was out of the life and out of a job. But remember, there's something like 2,000 Russian circus performers living in Las Vegas. Kind of like a big old world circus family. They don't let each other fall. So he began to train his son in gymnastics at a gym run by Vitaly Sherbo, the Soviet gymnast who won more gold medals and won Olympic Games than ever before in history. He also lives in Vegas. And soon, Vitaly Sherbo gave Sasha a job as the head coach of the gymnastics training school. I have three kids, two boys and a girl. And during all these years, I'm with them. It's Sasha's own palace of sport. And he thinks that training in gymnastics will be the ticket to freedom for his kids, too. Just with a kind of American twist. If kid here has some kind of good results in gymnastics, uh, kid has very good chance to have scholarship, even full scholarship in the university. And uh, right now I am very happy in that place what I am right now. Soviet Union crashed, but uh, somehow I appeared in the United States and again my kids were growing in my own house with swimming pool. Sometimes you don't know what kind of things brought you to this place, but it looks like uh, it's destiny. A big thank you to Alexander Sasha Ivanov for sharing your story with Snap, and a special thank you as well to Kim Palchikov, helping us out with that story from Las Vegas. To find out more about this 
amazing clan of Soviet circus performers now living in Vegas. Check out our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. And when Snap Judgment continues, we've got elephants, we've got knife throwers, and we've got that guy with a smile on his face when he's looking at your wallet. When Snap Judgment, the Circus Circus episode, continues. Stay tuned. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, it's in part thanks to Cleveland Clinic, where concerns about prostate cancer are met with hope and innovative treatments. Cleveland Clinic offers a top-ranked urology program, according to U.S. News and World Report. And for the latest information on prostate cancer or to get a second opinion, visit clevelandclinic.org urology. Same-day appointments are available at Cleveland Clinic because every life deserves world-class care. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. Be sure to check out Latino USA. Host Maria Inojosa brings you interviews and stories with a fresh perspective. You'll hear from artists and immigrants, abuelos, and others who are changing the American landscape. Find Latino USA now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. The circus is in town! Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Circus Circus episode. For our next story, we've got a window on the black sheep of the circus family, the bad boys of the circus experience, and I'd advise you to please keep a close eye on your purse at all times. Jamie DeWolf, please show these nice people the next story. carnival world there's clowns there's geeks and then there's the grifters this here is doc doc my nickname is doc traveled the carnival business for about two-thirds of my life doc is what someone call a grifter a small-time hustler in the old days doc ran games that were designed for only one thing to take your money these are the carnivores of the carnival and they're all hungry for the big score You know, everybody talks about the big scores. Most of the big scores really didn't happen on carnival lots. They happened on the little side street fairs and festivals or things like that. And when the carnival season ends, some grifters want to get in a little off-season hustle. So that's when you take your games to the roadside. Roadside is a trailer that has awnings and a door on it. And usually you get a small, cheap one when you're roadside. You don't want to take an expensive one in case you have to leave it. (laughs) So you find an unsavory neighborhood where people got cash to burn. The kind of cash that nobody wants to talk about where it came from. Usually when you're roadside, you don't have police protection unless you have an inn and you're paying one. So you're working pretty much at your wit's end. We'd pay a gas station, we'd set up right front, and we'd start duking them in with duke cards and getting the local guys playing. If you walked by, all you'd see was a trailer with a tent on the street with teddy bears and motorcycles out front that look like they're for sale. But when you step in the tent, that's when they ask you, do you want to play a game? The game is called a razzle. It's a box 
with holes in it that marbles will fit in after rolling around in it. And on these rows, there's numbers one through six. There's eight marbles. It's just a board with marbles and holes and some kind of point system. That's it. And three other guys gambling with you who are all in on the con. The whole gist of the game is it's an I win, you lose. It's all a confidence game. To get them playing and starting when they roll, you laugh and go, wow, a whole bunch of high numbers. And you count them up and grab them up real fast and say, wow, that's amazing. You won 50 points. And the guy's, what I win? Well, you got half a prize. I mean, you tear a teddy bear in half. In order to win the game, you have to get 100 points or more. But when you win, you get not only the return of your money, but whatever equivalent house money is promised, as well as any corresponding prizes. Basically, it's just playing on their greed. At some point, they're not playing for a teddy bear anymore. It can start off high, $5. It can start off with a lousy quarter. Hey, let's put up a quarter. You're not playing for anything big yet. And once they get involved and understand that they might win cash, there's a certain look that gamblers get in their face. You know when you have one hooked. But it takes money to make money. We had three or four guys, and you know, we were all set up for it and had big flash money. A lot of times it was more boodles than anything, a bunch of ones with a few hundreds around it. And the first day we go there, we'd lose money. We call throwing them over the fence. We'd let a few of them win, or we'd break even, or just take a few hundred for the fellas, you know? And then the next day, we'd go to work on them. One day in Tampa, Florida, Doc and his boys find a neighborhood the cops won't come to. They pay off a gas station owner who lets them put out their flashy little motorcycles in front of their tent and set up right there on the roadside for the razzle. Well, we had a couple of big plays that day, a few thousand here, a few thousand there. And this guy pulls up, plays the game a little bit, and they let him win for 50 bucks. And he goes away and he comes back with a buddy of his. And they wrapped this guy up and they played him for two and a half hours. Guy kept going back to the car, bringing out loads of cash. It was no big deal. He'd poke a Reno Bill and a couple of the other guys and Wiley Jim are keeping an eye on everything. And the guy dumps in $25,000 cash money. And his head snaps when it's time for him to double up. So now this guy's got to double down or walk away from his 25 grand. And he ran out of cash. And I said, well, now, you understand we're gambling. You win like a gentleman, you lose like a gentleman. Basically, I've got your money, and that can be it. We can shake hands, you know. So Doc gives him one more option, just because he's a nice guy. I said, or I'm allowed to, in certain circumstances, give you one opportunity to go get cash to finish this game out. And he throws a temper tantrum, and he gets on his cell phone on the way to the car, and he says, get the other fellows, we're getting our machine guns. It's time to go. It is called an immediate slough of the joint. Get gone. This is when it helps to have your hustle on wheels. Well, I'd already had the truck hooked up to the trailer, but the awnings were all out, and teddy bears were hanging off of them. And all the guys are getting nervous, and Wiley Jim takes off in the Cadillac, and one guy's throwing teddy bears in. Pocorino says, just go, leave that crap. We got a $25,000 score, right? And the truck starts, and I'm hitting it. Doc had the truck, but his boys needed getaway rides too. 
there was these two little mini hotshot motorcycles with 100cc motors sitting out there. Pocorino and another guy that worked for him, I can't remember his name, oh yeah, New York Johnny, jumped on these mini scooters and off we go and we're flying down the road. Now I'm way ahead of them, but I can see these two idiots in the mirror. And both of them are 300 pound, burly, ugly looking biker guys on these little mini scooters flying down the road. That's when the boys on the motorcycles catch up the dock in the truck. One of them gets up beside me, make it to the bridge and we'll pull over there by the side. So I made it to the bridge and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and all of a sudden I see them coming and they got this crazy look on their face and they come flying up on me and they go straight through the ditch and up into the brush and in the trees, both of them. And they're all beat up and I pull them out and they're screaming and they're cussing. You still got the money? Yeah, I got the money. What the heck happened? Well, the guy had got up behind him and was shooting at him. And they slid up off into some grounds and wrecked the bikes once, got back on them. And the guy tried to go through the parking lot and got his, his car stuck on a pole. So they got away. We got the bikes back out, went back to Gibsonton, Florida, and cut our money up. <laughs> so Doc finally did get his big score. But those are the golden days for grifters. Now they're on their way out. You know, I've had a lot of people, friends that have had guns pulled on them. I've known a couple that have been killed, a couple that have been shot. You get in big trouble, you get caught doing this game now because it's theft by deception. It's not a viable thing anymore. The world's gotten way too violent now. It's not something, you know what I mean? You're gonna see a lot of anymore. Right on, right on. Tell him, tell him, Jamie DeWolf, that I want double or nothing. That story was, of course, produced by Snap's own Jamie DeWolf with sound design by Renzo Gorio. From the outside, carnivals beckon with flashing lights and corn dogs and roller coasters. But our own Julia DeWitt comes to us with a story from the inside. This is Rocky. Rocky grew up in Shiprock, New Mexico. Yeah, hi, I'm Rocky. Rocky is a nickname that my grandfather gave me when my mom was giving birth to me. I gave her a fight, so after Rocky Marciano. Rocky had to fight early in his life. From the time he was 12, he was on his own. His dad was out of the picture, and his mom... My mom died, and... I was just like, do by himself. You no know, one was like, buy me school supplies or take me to movies. Rocky bounced around between family members, but money started to get tight. So a friend of his had a suggestion. He was like, dude, you need to get some money for school clothes. And he said, join a carnival. So I said, all right. Rocky finally caught up with the carnival in Arizona, and he quickly got a job selling corn dogs on the bustling midway. There's just something about it. The smell, the making the popcorn and the, the corn dogs and the oil and the beer and then the cigarettes towards the end. It just get, it turns into like this big old open party at the end of the night. Rocky quickly made friends with some of the younger guys and the older carnies watched out for them. Losing my mom was like a big part of it. I felt kind of vulnerable. So I let these people into my life and then they were cool. They took care of me. They were my family. And once you're in there, you're in. Together, they traveled up and down the West. 
hawking carnival snacks and sleeping on overinflated inner tubes. We would meet like traveling circuses, freak shows. We'd all get together, have like a big carnival circus, everything, and then like we'd all just disperse and see each other next year. Every carnival season for three years, Rocky left his small town in New Mexico and struck out again on the open road. Free range, baby. We had a good thing going. All the years before that were great. That year was the year that Rocky was 15. He and some friends were running a ride called the Himalaya, a sort of roller coaster meets a carousel. It doesn't look like much, but it goes really fast. One hot day in July, they rolled into Taos, New Mexico. They were tired, and they were looking forward to some time off. And then the supervisor was like, nah, dude, you guys are going to have to get out there and like set it up. We're going to open tonight. So the crew unloaded the Himalaya from its truck. I just remember my friend, he's like, this is a bad moon. We shouldn't be working. It's a bad moon. He's saying it all night. But they switched on the strobe lights and cranked up the fog hat anyway. The Himalaya was open. At midnight, three girls approached the ride, and they were buckled into car number 10. Three Chicano girls wearing, like, black T-shirts with Old English on the back of their shirts. Three girls just being themselves. Once their lap bar was secured, the ride was off. The Himalaya started slowly, sped up, and slowed again. They put their arms up. We told them we can't do that. They did it again, and we're like, if you do it one more time, we're going to kick you off the ride. Rocky and the Himalaya crew repeatedly yelled their warnings to the girls over the blaring music. And then the ride sped up one last time. And then they did it again, and... The girls were thrown from the ride. It was too late by the time the crew cut the power and hit the emergency switch. The police and paramedics arrived on the scene to find that two of the girls were severely injured. The third was announced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The ride was deemed a crime scene and the investigation into the cause of the accident continued on into the early morning. Physically and emotionally exhausted, the boys were finally allowed to go to bed. They went back to their semi-trailer and tried to get some rest. But their long night wasn't over yet. I was laying there and I heard this... Like someone hitting the side of the, the trailer. But then I saw these like speckles of like wood and light. And another one... That's when Rocky realized he was in the middle of a drive-by shooting and he was the target. And I was like, they're shooting at us. Jumped out and I like hid behind a tire on the other side of the trailer. Turns out that one of the girls that was injured on the ride was a gang member's girlfriend. That gang heard about what happened and they were back at the carnival looking for revenge. The shooters were long gone when the police showed up again and Rocky says they weren't happy to be back. They said just get the hell out of town. It was like a small town mentality, almost defending them. You know, like we were the riffraff, we were the troublemakers, you know. If it weren't for us, she wouldn't have died. It was clear that Taos wasn't a safe place for them anymore. So Rocky and his friends moved on to the next stop in Grand Junction, Colorado. But just moving on wasn't enough. Rocky couldn't stop thinking about the accident. It was just too much, man. The next morning we woke up, we cleaned up, and I was like, I'm done. And that's when I quit the carnival. Rocky went back to Shiprock and finished high school, but he found it hard to fit in. When I was done working at Carnival, I didn't feel like a kid. I wasn't doing what kids were doing. 
I couldn't. I tried. It didn't seem as fun as it used to be. Later investigation would show that the seatbelt on car number 10 had loosened while the ride was moving, and the lap bar unlatched when the ride sped up. With their hands in the air, the girls had no way to brace themselves. It was a simple ride malfunction, the result of poor ride maintenance, not of negligent ride operators. But 17 years later, Rocky still carries the memory of that night with him. I just still have the sense of guilt. This shit was someone's kid, and I was the last person she looked at. I was pretty desensitized after my mom died. But after the accident... It made me have a stronger appreciation for life. This shit was only three years older to me. I was like, I want to do a lot more than that. So Rocky grew up to get a culinary degree and is now the owner of a wildly successful street food business in San Francisco. He has learned to appreciate when life is good for the girl in Taos who never had a chance to. Thank you very much to Rocky for sharing that story with Snap. Now, if you see Rocky in the streets of San Francisco selling his delicious fried bread, be sure to ask him about that Snap Judgment discount. He'll hook you up. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Julia DeWitt. When we return, I get to tell you about a circus that you, you sitting right there, you can join for real. When Snap Judgment, the Circus Circus episode, continues. Snap Judgment is supported by Chipotle because they know that some of the questions out there remain a mystery, like what is polysorbitate 80? And what happened to polysorbitates 1 through 79? Version 80 must be pretty special since you'll find it in other fast food. But at Chipotle, their ingredients don't have numbers. They have names like avocados, onions, pencil beans, and roasted tomatoes because food should be made from food. Chipotle, food without a side of questions. Looky here. Research says that people love receiving email messages from companies they do business with. So why not use email marketing for your small business or nonprofit? Constant Contact has a ticket. Beautifully designed templates, easily customized to match your brand. They look great. And it's easy. Constant Contact helps you to engage customers, reach larger audiences, and get your message seen on social networks. Check it. With Constant Contact, 98% of your messages reach their target. Are you kidding me? Become a real marketer today. Constant Contact. All it takes is a free trial at ConstantContact.com. We'd like to thank StoryWorth.com for supporting our Kickstarter campaign. StoryWorth believes that every family has a story worth telling, and they've built the easiest way to privately record your family stories. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved ones a question about their life. They have hundreds of great questions to choose from, such as, what is some of the best advice your mom ever gave you? Your family stories are privately and securely saved on StoryWorth.com and immediately emailed to the rest of your family. You can even order beautiful printed books. Go to StoryWorth.com forward slash snap right now to get 20% off your first year subscription. That's StoryWorth.com slash snap. StoryWorth. 
Facebook.com slash snap because every family has a story worth telling. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Circus Circus episode. I get to be your master of ceremonies, Glenn Washington. And for the next act in our circus, we're going to take you back, way back. Team Snap has spent months gathering up newspaper clippings and testimonials from 1916. And understand, bad things do happen. So sensitive listeners and parents of small children should be advised. The summer of 1916 was a tough one for America, but even tougher for small-town Tennessee. A polio epidemic racked the region, and the country was about to send one million of its finest young men to World War I. And the United States took up arms to join the Allies. Recruits came, bankers, bakers. So, when the Sparks Brothers Circus rolled into town after town, people were glad for the relief. With the circus came laughter and joy. And Charlie Sparks, he led his fledgling little circus and served as ringleader extraordinaire. The pride of Charlie's show was a five-ton elephant named Big Mary, whom Charlie insisted was a full three inches taller than P.T. Barnum's jumbo. Come see Big Mary, the largest living mammal on Earth. People flocked from miles around and under the big top. In dusty towns across the country, Big Mary thrilled audiences by playing songs on 25 musical horns without missing a note. The audience favorite was Mary's baseball act. Wielding a bat in her trunk, the bandstands roared with laughter when Mary faked anger at the umpire and trumpeted in his ear. Anger played very well with this audience. But Mary's fury was no laughing matter. The massive elephant was said to be gentle one moment and fly into a rage the next. Charlie's secret was that Mary had actually killed two of her previous owners. Known for her temper, she'd been passed from circus to circus to circus to Charlie. So one day in St. Paul, Virginia, when an eager young hotel bellhop named Walter Red Eldridge came up and explained his dream to be an animal keeper, Charlie quickly hired him as Big Mary's trainer. And despite his background, Red Eldridge proved a competent elephant handler. His third day on the job, in the small town of Kingsport, Tennessee, Red Eldridge perched proudly atop Mary's head as elephants paraded, trunk to tail, right down the town's main street. And that's when things went terribly wrong for Red Eldridge, for Charlie Sparks, and for Big Mary. It seems that Mary spotted a rind of juicy red watermelon on the side of the dirt road, and when she moved her trunk to snatch it up, Red prodded her with a stick on the side of her head. One onlooker, the 18-year-old H.W. Coleman, described what happened to a local newspaper. That big old elephant turned, and boy, was she ever mad. She trumpeted real loud and grabbed Eldridge around the waist with her trunk. 
poor Red Eldridge was no more. Once again, Big Mary had become Murderous Mary. The crowd shrieked with fear and scattered down the road. A local blacksmith named Hench Cox charged out of his shop, waving a pistol, and shot five rounds into Mary. But the elephant barely flinched. So the crowd began to chant, Let's kill the elephant! Let's kill the elephant! Let's kill the elephant! Louder and louder, the crowd grew even more furious and more terrified. They had faced polio and war and poverty, but this was too much. Charlie Sparks, terrified with the prospect of losing his main attraction and his $8,000 investment, tried to calm the crowd. I'd be happy to kill her, folks. I'd be happy to, but there ain't a gun in the land big enough to do the trick. Eventually, people from the circus managed to calm Mary down and lead her back to her home under the big top. Meanwhile... Panic spread across eastern Tennessee about the killer elephant. Rumors began that she'd killed four people, then eight. And the Johnson City Comet falsely reported that she killed 18 men. Later that same night, performing in the circus, Big Mary made her final mistake. In the middle of the show, The elephant snuck up on Charlie Sparks, removed his hat from his head, and slapped him in the face with it. While the crowd roared with laughter, Charlie Sparks, red-faced, fuming with anger, hatched a plan to get his revenge on Big Mary. The next day, the circus pulled into a rainy Irwin, Tennessee. And after Mary helped pull the train cars through the muddy fields, she performed her last circus. The mood under the big top was said to be tinged with sadness. All of the performers, all of the audience, everyone knew this would be Mary's final act. Charlie had invited them all to view the elephants hanging following the circus. In the early evening, a crowd of hundreds followed Big Mary to the railroad derrick People were everywhere. Grown men clamored to the tops of trains in the rail yard to get a better view. Newspapers report that one man, who thought he was coming to see a black person lynched, became incensed when he found the condemned was actually an elephant. He got up and started yelling at the crowd, You should be ashamed of yourselves. You are a dishonorable people. The railroad crane operator refused to hang the elephant. He worked the night shift and feared the image would haunt him in the rail yards. So a rail worker named One-Eyed Steve Harvey volunteered for the job. The crowd watched in silence as Harvey fixed a massive chain around Mary's neck. She was lifted 10 feet off the ground where she breathed her last breath and then fell limp. Town folks seemed to think that justice had been done. E.H. Griffith, a woman who saw all of the events transpire, said, I don't believe any of those who saw the event felt it was inhumane. 
Mary paid for her crime just as anyone else would. The elephant was lowered into a grave by the river where a local veterinarian performed an autopsy on her giant corpse. He discovered that Mary had a badly infected tooth in precisely the area where Red Eldridge had smacked her with a stick. In the end, she was just an animal, acting out in pain. She was not spiteful, not vengeful, not cruel, just hurting. If you go to Irwin, Tennessee today, you'll not find a grave or a statue, but only a tiny antique store holding on to Mary's memory. The name of the store? Hanging Elephant Antiques. That Sad But True Story was produced by Anna Sussman and myself. We've all gone to the circus and seen how fun it looks to fly from the flying trapeze, to juggle all those balls in the air, to walk the tightrope. But the time and effort it takes to master any of these disciplines, it can really be a tremendous pain. Our next guest, He wanted all the adulation without the hard work and bother. And it turns out, it doesn't take much work to start a circus. And for some people, it doesn't even take any talent. This is the one and only Chicken John. Hey, my name is Chicken John. Chicken was a touring musician from New York. But after his bandmate's death from an overdose, Chicken decided to change it all. So he moved to Los Angeles. You know, I went to L.A. I was going to start a new life. I was going to be a stand-up comic. Hey, who's out on a Monday night? You've seen this guy before. He's back for more. Give it up for Chicken John. But there was only one problem. No one was laughing. I bombed like 60-something, 60 62 times in a row. And uh, I got, kind of started to like it. You ever hear the term, when you're in a hole, stop digging? No, I just dig more. Just like to see where, what, was there more? And then in the process of doing that, I like, I realized I can only bomb so much as one man. So I like, we need more people bombing. It's like, yeah, start a circus. So Chicken put out an open call for performers and pranksters to tour the United States. Anyone could join, but this wasn't like any other circus. There's only one rule. No talent. You're going to do like a show on a stage. Here they are. The da, 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 da. You know, you're going to introduce this person who's doing this thing. But that thing that they're doing can't involve any talent. Like, you could juggle one ball. Because juggling two balls requires some kind of talent. We can't have that kind of thing in our show. As a matter of fact, if you had talent, you're welcome to join but you'd have to do something else for the show. And so the Circus Ridiculous was born, and Chicken John started hunting for venues across the country. I would book ourselves in like rec halls and like a recycling center. From garbage dumps, punk rock dives, to a rehab, Chicken pushed for venues that had never seen a clown before. And in every city they went to, the circus began to grow. The first show that we did, we had 17 people. And as that tour went on, we would collect strays. We would never say no. Somebody like came and saw the circus and was like, you guys are amazing, I'm gonna 
I get it. I'm joining. I said, okay, hop in. And then the show would begin. That's right. It's everything you've never wanted in a circus and much, much less. There was this one-man band Elvis impersonator. Then we would do like a 35-minute freak show. But Chicken's no-talent rule created new kinds of performances. Some of the acts were just incredible, what these people came up with. Like the reverse stripper, that was always fun. Girl comes out completely naked. The band's like, dun, 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 And I was like, what do you want to see her do? Come on. And get the audience to chant, put it on. Put on like a, a tank top, and a glove, and another shirt, and a sweater, and a onesie. By the end of it, she's like in a sleeping bag, wiggling back and forth on the ground in a sleeping bag. <laughs> Reverse stripping, the temporary tattooed man, the speed metal tap dancer, and the world's only drunken knife thrower. He's like, hey, I need an audience participant from the audience. He's like drinking out of the Jack Daniels bottle. Who asked for a volunteer who would allow themselves to be tied to a target? And we blow up these balloons and we tape the balloons into her armpits and next to her head. And then he gets out the knives, right? And he like gets on the other side of the stage, and he's like, okay, I'm gonna throw the knife and blow the balloons up. Holding the knife, he's getting ready to throw it. And it's like, wait a minute. What about the blindfold? He's like, oh, that's right, the blindfold, right? And uh, he puts on a blindfold, so we blindfold her. The drunk knife thrower takes off his blindfold, and he's no longer weaving or drunk. It's an act, you know. And then I'm standing right next to her, and I say, okay, ready, ready to throw the knife. Okay, spin him around a couple times. Okay, there you go. He's not spinning. He's like, okay, you ready to throw the knife? And he's like, okay, I'm ready. He's not even holding the knife up. And then I pull the knife out of my pocket, and I pop the balloon and stick the knife into the wood right next to her head. He puts his blindfold back on. We take her blindfold off. And all she sees is the guy standing there weaving around like he just threw the knife up. I mean, we were basically providing no content as our content. But Chicken's show came to take on an enormous life of its own. The circus was like... 30 and 40 people traveling for like six months a year for five years. Over 200 people performed in the Circus Ridiculous, couch surfing, sleeping in the backs of buses, and pulling up at truck stops wearing signs that said, Will Clown for Food. 200 performers, just a constant revolving door of people coming and going. Until the circus, designed to bomb in front of every audience, did the unthinkable. The Circus Ridiculous enjoyed some curious success. It got a uh, nine-page, 18-photo spread in Spin Magazine. A huge expose on our show. Pictures of all of us and the dog and the bus. The world said the no-talent circus had talent. Like we're the cool, hip thing. And it killed it dead because with that kind of attention people in the troupe were expecting things to change now that we were successful for there to be food maybe cigarettes or something you know like some improvement just because someone reads your name in a, in a magazine doesn't mean that you get any money they thought as like this is going to change everything today and it did. And the Circus of Ridiculous went from one that craved chaos to one that craved success. The heartbreak when they realized that vibe that anything can happen. I'm really good at creating that vibe that like anything can happen. 
But eventually, anything can happen has to become something. That was the end. A victim of their own success, the heyday of the Circus Ridiculous came to its end. But Chicken continues on with new cohorts on their mission of mischief, challenging the world to ask what talent really means. And you'll never know when they'll strike again. You know, we're like a militia, always in reserve, you know what I mean, to come ruin the day or save the day, whatever is more important. Chicken John's Misadventures are continued in the book of is. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Mark Ristich. You might think that the circus is over. The circus snap is never over, dear friends. Full episodes, movies, music, all that available on our website right now, snapjudgment.org. Facebook, of course. Twitter, snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and the juggling giants of Jasper Geneva. Please shake your crackerjack boxes for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. <laughs> he throws knives at people and they're not even part of the act. Mr. Jamie the Wolf, Anna, the tattooed lady Sussman, Pat Mercedes Miller catches nine out of every ten people who jump from the ladder. Julia DeWitt walks on beds of fire. Renzo Gorio eats deep-fried Twinkies. Stephanie Fu is not the world's only living half-girl. And Will Urbina thinks circus animals go great with ketchup. If you go to the Big Top and see someone marching around with a clipboard pointing out various safety infractions, do not call 911. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Get them a hot dog in a front-row seat. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, this is not the news. In fact, you could take everybody in the circus and put them in charge of the banks. And you could take everyone in charge of the banks and make them run the circus. And when you came back, you could find the banks were finally solvent. But the circus was broke. You could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.